Chapter Fifty, Part Two, of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times, Volume Six. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times, Volume Six, by François Guizot, translated by Robert Black. Chapter Fifty, Louis the Fourteenth and Death, seventeen eleven to seventeen fifteen, Part Two. God had in former times given France a Saint-Louis. He did not deem her worthy of possessing such an ornament a second time. The comfort and hope which were just appearing in the midst of so many troubles vanished suddenly like lightning. The Dauphiness fell ill on the 5th of February. She had a burning fever and suffered from violent pains in the head. It was believed to be scarlet fever, or rougiole, with whispers at the same time of ugly symptoms. The malady went on increasing. The Dauphin was attacked in his turn. Sacraments were mentioned. The princess, taken by surprise, hesitated without daring to speak. Her Jesuit confessor, Father Larue, himself proposed to go and fetch another priest. A recollet, or raptionist, was brought. When he arrived, she was dying. A few hours later she expired, at the age of twenty-six, on the 12th of February, 1712. Quote, with her there was a total eclipse of joys pleasures amusements even and every sort of grace darkness covered the whole face of the court she was the soul of it all she filled it all she pervaded all the interior of it the king loved her as much as he was capable of loving she amused him and charmed him in the sombre moments of his life he like the dauphin had always been ignorant of the giddiness of which she had been guilty. Madame de Maintenon, who knew of them, and who held them as a rod over her, was only concerned to keep them secret. All the court, with the exception of a few perfidious intriguers, made common cause to serve her and please her. Quote, Regularly ugly, pendant cheeks, forehead too prominent, a nose that said nothing, of eyes the most speaking and most beautiful in the world, a carriage of the head gallant, majestic, graceful, and a look the same, smile the most expressive, waist long, rounded, slight, supple, the gait of a goddess on the clouds, her youthful, vivacious, energetic gaiety carried all before it, and her nymph-like agility wafted her everywhere like a whirlwind that fills many places at once and gives to them movement and life. If the court existed after her, it was but to languish away. Memoire de Saint Simon. There was only one blow more fatal for death to deal, and there was not long to wait for it. Quote, I have prayed and I will pray, writes Fenelon. God knows whether the prince is for one instant forgotten. I fancy I see him in the state in which Saint Augustin depicts himself. My heart is obscured by grief. All that I see reflects for me but the image of death. All that was sweet to me when I could share it with her whom I loved becomes a torment to me since I lost her. My eyes seek for her everywhere and find her nowhere. When she was alive, wherever I might be without her, everything said to me, You are going to see her. Nothing says so now. I find no solace but in my tears. I cannot bear the weight of my wounded and bleeding heart and yet I know not where to rest it. I am wretched, for so it is when the heart is set on the love of things that pass away. Quote, 
the days of this affliction were soon shortened says st simon from the first moment i saw him i was scared at his fixed haggard look with a something of ferocity at the change in his countenance and the livid marks i noticed upon it he was waiting at marly for the king to awake they came to tell him he could go in he turned without speaking a word without replying to his gentleman or menin who pressed him to go i went up to him taking the liberty of giving him a gentle push he gave me a look that pierced right to the heart and went away i never looked on him again please god in his mercy i may look on him forever there where his goodness no doubt has placed him it was a desperate but a short struggle disease and grief were victorious over the most sublime courage Quote, it was the spectacle of a man beside himself who was forcing himself to keep the surface smooth and who succumbed in the attempt. The Dauphin took to his bed on the 14th of February. He believed himself to be poisoned and said from the first that he should never recover. His piety alone, through the most prodigious efforts, still kept up. He spoke no more save to God, continually lifting up his soul to him in fervent aspirations. Quote, what tender but tranquil views, what lively motions towards thanksgiving for being preserved from the sceptre and the account that must be rendered thereof, what submission, and how complete, what ardent love of God, what a magnificent idea of infinite mercy, what pious and humble awe, what invincible patience, what sweetness, what constant kindness towards all that approached him, what pure charity which urged him forward to God. France at length succumbed beneath this last chastisement. God gave her a glimpse of a prince whom she did not deserve. Earth was not worthy of him. He was already ripe for a blessed eternity. Quote, for some time past I have feared that a fatality hung over the Dauphin, Fenelon had written at the first news of his illness. I have at the bottom of my heart a lurking apprehension that God is not yet appeased towards France. For a long while he has been striking, as the prophet says, and his anger is not yet worn out. God has taken from us all our hope for the church and for the state. Fenelon and his friends had expected too much, and hoped for too much. They had relied upon the Dauphin to accomplish a work above human strength. He might have checked the evil, retarded for a while the march of events, but France carried simultaneously in her womb germs of decay and hopes of progress, both as yet concealed and confused, but too potent and too intimately connected with the very sources of her history and her existence, for the hand of the most virtuous and most capable of princes to have the power of plucking them out or keeping them down. There was universal and sincere mourning in France and in Europe. The death of the little Duke of Brittany, which took place a few days after that of his parents, completed the consternation into which the court was thrown. The most sinister rumour circulated darkly. A base intrigue caused the Duke of Orléans to be accused. People called to mind his taste for chemistry and even magic, his flagrant impiety, his scandalous debauchery. Beside himself with grief and anger, he demanded of the king to be sent to the Bastille. The king refused curtly, coldly, but not unmoved in his secret heart by the perfidious insinuations which made their way even to him, but too just and too sensible to entertain a hateful lie, 
which nevertheless lay heavy on the Duke of Orléans to the end of his days. Darkly, but to more effect, the same rumours were renewed before long. The Duke of Berry died at the age of twenty-seven on the 4th of May, 1714, of a disease which presented the same features as the scarlet fever, or rougeole to which his brother and sister-in-law had succumbed. The king was old and sad. The state of his kingdom preyed upon his mind. He was surrounded by influences hostile to his nephew, whom he himself called, quote, a vaunter of crimes, end quote. A child who was not five years old remained sole heir to the throne. Madame de Maintenon, as sad as the king, quote, naturally mistrustful, addicted to jealousies, susceptibilities, suspicions, aversions, spites, and woman's wiles, end quote. Lettre de Fenelon au Duc de Chevreuse, being moreover sincerely attached to the king's natural children, was constantly active on their behalf. On the 19th of July, 1714, the king announced to the premier president and the attorney-general of the Parliament of Paris that it was his pleasure to grant to the Duke of Maine and to the Count of Toulouse, for themselves and their descendants, the rank of princes of the blood, in its full extent, and that he desired that the deeds should be enregistered in the Parliament. Soon after, still under the same influence, he made a will which was kept a profound secret, and which he sent to be deposited in the strong-room, or greffe, of the Parliament, committing the guardianship of the future king to the Duke of Maine, and placing him, as well as his brother, on the Council of Regency, with close restrictions as to the Duke of Orléans, who would be naturally called to the government of the kingdom during the minority. The will was darkly talked about. The effect of the elevation of bastards to the rank of princes of the blood had been terrible. Quote, there was no longer any son of France. The Spanish branch had renounced. The Duke of Orléans had been carefully placed in such a position as not to dare say a word or show the least dissatisfaction. His only son was a child. Neither the Duke of Berry, his brothers, nor the Prince of Conti, were of an age or of standing, in the king's eyes, to make the least trouble in the world about it." The bombshell dropped all at once when nobody could have expected it, and everybody fell on his stomach, as is done when a shell drops. Everybody was gloomy and almost wild. The king himself appeared as if exhausted by so great an effort of will and power. He had only just signed his will when he met at Madame de Maintenon's the ex-queen of England. Quote, I have made my will, madame, said he. I have purchased repose. I know the impotence and uselessness of it. We can do all as we please as long as we are here. After we are gone, we can do less than private persons. We have only to look at what became of my father's, and immediately after his death, too, and of those of so many other kings. I am quite aware of that. But in spite of all that, it was desired. And so, madame, you see it has been done. Come of it what may, at any rate, I shall not be worried about it any more. It was the old man yielding to the entreaties and intrigues of his domestic circle. The judgment of the king remained steady and true, without illusions and without prejudices. Death was coming, however, after a reign which had been so long and had occupied so much room in the world that it caused mistakes as to the very age of the king. He was seventy-seven. He continued to work with his ministers. The order so long and so firmly established was not disturbed by illness any more than it had been by the reverses and sorrows of late. Meanwhile the appetite was diminishing, 
the thinness went on increasing a sore on the leg appeared the king suffered a great deal on the twenty fourth of august he dined in bed surrounded as usual by his courtiers he had a difficulty in swallowing for the first time publicity was burdensome to him they could not get on and said to those who were there that he begged them to withdraw meanwhile the drums and oat-boys still went on playing beneath his window and the twenty-four violins at his dinner in the evening he was so ill that he asked for the sacraments there had been wrung from him a codicil which made the will still worse he nevertheless received the duke of orleans to whom he commended the young king on the twenty-sixth he called to his bedside all those of the court who had the entry Quote, gentlemen he said to them i ask your pardon for the bad example i have set you i have to thank you much for the way in which you have served me and for the attachment and fidelity you have always shown me i am very sorry not to have done for you what i should have liked to do the bad times are the cause of that i request of you on my great-grandson's behalf the same attention and fidelity that you have shown me it is a child who will possibly have many crosses to bear follow the instructions my nephew gives you he is about to govern the kingdom and i hope that he will do it well i hope also that you will all contribute to preserve unity i feel that i am becoming unmanned and that i am unmanning you also i ask your pardon farewell gentlemen i feel sure that you will think of me sometimes the princesses had entered the king's closet they were weeping and making a noise quote, you must not cry so said the king who asked for them to bid them farewell he sent for the little dauphin his governess the duchess of ventadour brought him on to the bed quote, my child said the king to him you are going to be a great king render to god that which you owe to him recognize the obligations you have towards him cause him to be honoured by your subjects try to preserve peace with your neighbours i have been too fond of war do not imitate me in that any more than in the too great expenses i have incurred take counsel in all matters and seek to discern which is the best in order to follow it try to relieve your people which i have been so unfortunate as not to have been able to do he kissed the child and said quote, darling i give you my blessing with all my heart he was taken away the king asked for him once more and kissed him again lifting hands and eyes to heaven and blessings upon him everybody wept the king caught sight in a glass of two grooms of the chamber who were sobbing quote, what are you crying for he said to them did you think that i was immortal he was left alone with madame de maintenon quote, i have always heard say that it was difficult to make up one's mind to die said he i do not find it so hard ah oh, sir she replied it may be very much so when there are earthly attachments hatred in the heart or restitutions to make quote, ah replied the king as for restitutions to make i owe nobody any individually as for those that i owe the kingdom i have hope in the mercy of god the duke of orleans came back again the king had sent for him quote, when i am dead he said you will have the young king taken to vincennes the air there is good he will remain there until all the ceremonies are over at versailles and the castle well cleaned up afterwards you will then bring him back again he at the same time gave orders for going and furnishing vincennes 
and directed a casket to be opened in which the plan of the castle was kept, because as the court had not been there for fifty years, Cavois, grand chamberlain of his household, had never prepared apartments there. Quote, when I was king, he said several times. A quack had brought a remedy which would cure gangrene, he said. The sore on the leg was hopeless, but they gave the king a dose of the elixir in a glass of Alicante. Quote, to life and to death, said he as he took the glass. Just as it shall please God. The remedy appeared to act. The king recovered a little strength. The throng of courtiers, which the day before had been crowding to suffocation in the rooms of the Duke of Orleans, withdrew at once. Louis the Fourteenth did not delude himself about this apparent rally. Quote, Prayers are offered in all the churches for your Majesty's life, said the parish priest of Versailles. Quote, that is not the question, said the king. It is my salvation that much needs praying for. End quote. Madame de Maintenon had hitherto remained in the back rooms, though constantly in the king's chamber when he was alone. He said to her once, quote, What consoles me for leaving you is that it will not be long before we meet again. End quote. She made no reply. Quote, what will become of you? he added. You have nothing. Quote, Do not think of me, said she. I am nobody. Think only of God. End quote. He said farewell to her. She still remained a little while in his room, and went out when he was no longer conscious. She had given away here and there the few movables that belonged to her, and now took the road to Saint-Cyr. On the steps she met Marshal Villeroy. Quote, "'Good-bye, Marshal,' she said curtly, and covered up her face in her coifs. He it was who sent her news of the king to the last moment. The Duke of Orléans, on becoming regent, went to see her, and took her the patent, or brevet, for a pension of sixty thousand livres, quote, which her disinterestedness had made necessary for her, end quote, said the preamble. It was paid her up to the last day of her life. History makes no further mention of her name. She never left Saint-Cyr. Thither the Tsar Peter the Great, when he visited Paris and France, went to see her. She was confined to her bed. He sat a little while beside her, quote, what is your malady he asked her through his interpreter quote, a great age answered madame de maintenon smiling he looked at her a moment longer in silence then closing the curtains he went out abruptly the memory he would have called up had vanished the woman on whom the great king had for thirty years heaped confidence and affection was old forgotten dying she expired at saint cyr on the fifteenth of april seventeen nineteen at the age of eighty-three. She had left the king to die alone. He was in the agonies. The prayers in extremity were being repeated around him. The ceremonial recalled him to consciousness. He joined his voice with the voices of those present, repeating the prayers with them. Already the court was hurrying to the Duke of Orléans. Some of the more confident had repaired to the Duke of Mainz. The king's servants were left almost alone around his bed. The tones of the dying man were distinctly heard above the great number of priests. He several times repeated, Nunc et in ora mortis. Then he said quite aloud, quote, O my God, come thou to help me, haste thee to succour me. End quote. Those were his last words. He expired on Sunday, the 1st of September, 1718, at 8 a.m. Next day he would have been seventy seven years of age and he had reigned seventy-two of them. 
in spite of his faults and his numerous and culpable errors louis the fourteenth had lived and died like a king the slow and grievous agony of olden france was about to begin End of chapter fifty